today we're going to look at the, the last text uh, that we're going to look at in the Gospel of Matthew for this Easter, uh, Christmas Easter season that we've been in. The part of this text that I wanted to highlight for you is this. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And it's really not what you expect to hear in a text that follows Jesus' resurrection and all those meals and all those appearances that Jesus made with his disciples. Some doubted. What's that all about? So that's our subject today. Thomas was one of the twelve apostles, and he's famous because of his assertion that he would not believe the reports that Jesus had resurrected unless he could put his finger in the wound, wounds, I should say, uh, of Jesus' crucifixion. And it's really often used as a disparagement of Thomas' character as a disciple. We call him Doubting Thomas. Uh, we say things like, if he was much of an apostle, he would have believed. Some of that comes on the heels of Jesus' statement, you've seen and believed, but blessed are those who didn't see, but still believed. But there's an interesting dynamic going on in Thomas's life. It is widely believed that Thomas traveled to India. In fact, there is a, 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 a sect or a group of Christians in India that are Thomasite Christians, named after Thomas, who it is believed went there and evangelized uh, people in India. It's also believed that he went to Syria and did some preaching and that ultimately he was martyred because of his faith. Now when you measure that, when you set that alongside this thing where we call him Doubting Thomas, you are left with this very interesting tension. Here's a man who doubted and yet a man who had extraordinary faith. It's kind of interesting. Matthew 28, 16 through 20 highlights the fact that faith and doubt often exist in the same context. Doubt in the case of Thomas did not prove to be a negative for him. In fact, if you really are honest about it, the disciples lived with the doubt their whole time of discipleship to Jesus. When they were on the Sea of Galilee and uh, a storm blew up, they were afraid they were going to drown. And they had a moment of doubt when it came to Jesus' presence in the boat. Or in the case of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus says, take care of these 5,000 people. And they said, we can't do it. It's too many people and we don't have the resources. And later, there's a group of 4,000. This is just men, uh, not counting women and children. 
Jesus says, feed them. And they say the same thing again in spite of the fact that they've just seen the feeding of the 5,000. What are you talking about? We don't have the resources. We can't do that. If that's not doubt, what is? Third occasion, uh, Peter says to Jesus, there is no way that what you're saying is true, that you're going to Jerusalem to die. There's no way. And you see a sort of doubt in Peter's life. Faith is often presented in Christian circles as a binary function. It's either a one or a zero. You either have it or you don't. You're either in or you're out. So if you look at Jesus' words to his disciples through a binary lens, you have a command from Jesus to flip on the switch of faith. Just, just believe. It's sort of like the just do it kind of slogan. Just flip it on. You, you've got to get a decision from this person. Um, you've got to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior at this moment. And it, it's something you flip on. It's either on or it's off. It's in or it's out. It's yes or it's no. It's black or white. And yet you see in the life of the disciples that it's not binary, that it's... it's a process, it's growth, it's maturation, it's understanding, it's all of that rolled into one. You have Thomas on the one hand saying, there's no way I can believe that unless I actually put my finger in the wound. But you also have the Thomas who's willing to die for Jesus at the end of his life and who's martyred. Fred Craddock tells a story of the Marx family, M-A-R-X, the Marx family of Prussia. Uh, I believe the Marx family were Jews. And they were forced by uh, Christian, in, question, in quotation marks, Christian people in Prussia to become Christians in order to get work. Well, Father Marx wanted work, and so he does that, but does so resentfully, I think. Son Carl, name sound familiar, is watching all of this, and he came to hate Christians as a result of that, that it was treated as a binary function, that you either are or you, you aren't, you have to flip the switch on, you're either on or you're off, you're either in or you're out. It's a transaction. It's a forced relationship. Makes you wonder what might have happened and what might have been the history of communism if Karl Marx had seen a community that said, we love you and we care about you and we want you to have work. And they didn't treat it as a binary function if they just treated people right, would they have come to know the Lord in a very real and sincere way? In the Greek texts, uh, the text that Casey read you this morning says, go make disciples, right? Go make disciples. But there's no word make in the Greek. 
All it says is, go disciple. Period. Go disciple. And it's a different, it's a whole different atmosphere. It's, it's a different word. Uh, it's, it's not something that you, you do to people. It's not something that you make to happen. I remember in the early days of, of my life and my ministry, I, I, I believed it was such a personal responsibility of mine. I had to go make disciples. <clears throat> and it's, it's a frustrating and failed way to live. It's not a binary transaction. <clears throat> if, if I disciple someone, what I am doing is I'm inviting them to enter into my life in some sort of way where I can show them the love of Christ. It's a different process. Sometimes I, I think it's almost like we view it as a computer download. I was going to use, and I, I ran out of time, but uh, in The Matrix, there's a, a scene where one of the characters has got to download some information, and so they hook up to the computer and they download the information. And I think that's how we sometimes view the whole Christian life. Something that I, I download. So Thomas, when he asked to see, was performing the role of disciple. What he was doing is he was saying, I'm still in relationship to you, but... I'm growing in my understandings and my experience of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. I've really got to put my finger in the wounds. And it, it was all part of that process for, for Thomas. By the way, that would be different for every single person. Our needs, uh, what makes us more and more committed to Christ, is different for each of us. And for Thomas, the the deal breaker was this whole thing of resurrection and of the fact that, that he knew Jesus had been dead and that he was in that tomb. And so he asks for that. Discipleship allows for that sort of ebb and growth, uh, ebb and flow rather, growth and shrinkage. It's not static, it's not uniform, uh, it's not binary, it's not straight line. It's up and down, up and down. I'm sure I could ask everyone here if there's been a time in your life when you were very, very discouraged about your walk with Christ. Did you give up? Well, no. You're here. You know, we've had those ups and downs and we persevere through them and our faith grows when we do. And it's, it's stronger the next time. And, and so when that event occurs again in our life, we're more prepared to, to meet it. Ebb and flow, give and take. What the disciples used as their curriculum for future generations of Christians uh, was what they had learned from Jesus. They just went about doing what Jesus had done. What if Karl Marx's parents had been shown the respect of a disciple rather than an on-off transaction? I think we'd have a different story, don't you? 
If you accept the shorter ending of Mark 16, which is verse 8, you're left with this. This is how that's the, the ending that I accept that I think is is the correct one, but you're left with this. This is where Mark 16, verse 8 ends. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went to the tomb, it's now empty, where they were told by an angel, it says a young man, but an angel, who told them that Jesus had risen from the tomb and was in Galilee waiting for them. Mark says that the women went out from the tomb, they fled, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Kind of an interesting moment of faith for them, dealing with this information, trying to figure out what it meant. No clarity, certainly, at this moment. Luke says, that was Mark, Luke says, it seemed to them, the apostles, like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Kind of interesting that in the resurrection stories you have doubt. You have people that love Jesus greatly who wanted to believe and yet were confronted by this this doubt. The body of the person they loved was missing. Uh, But this is not something you see every day. It's not something that you experience. And how do you deal with it? Fleeing from the tomb and keeping their mouths shut were just singular events on a continuum from doubt to belief, from non-faith to full faith. They were, they were just spots. They were blips on this continuum. Paul Bunyan, have you ever heard of Pilgrim's Progress? Uh, 17th century book written by this guy named Paul Bunyan. Um, it's a description of the journey of a person named Christian in this book. It's an allegory. And what Bunyan proposes to do in this book is to talk about all of the stages that a person goes through on their their road to maturity and faith. So there's chapters like the hill of difficulty and the valley of humiliation and the valley of the shadow of death and bypath meadow. All these experiences happen to Christian as he, he goes along. He gets sidetracked and has crises. Bunyan understood that faith is not straight line. I mention this because I think it aptly describes the struggle that Christians must face and endure throughout life. One of the reasons I'm, I'm becoming reacquainted with the Psalms and, and one of the things that, that is impressive about the Psalms is the fact that you see this sort of journey through despair and faith in the lives of the people that wrote those Psalms. Our text says that Jesus met uh, his disciples at an unnamed mountain in Samaria where they worshipped him. 
where they worshipped him. Seems incredible that worship and doubt could fit in the same text, doesn't it? I, I think that's pretty amazing. But I think it shows how complex faith is. Maybe part of the problem is because it is often translated as belief, but the word and the way it's used does not mean belief. It means trust. That's what pistis is, trust. And so for all the problems with belief that they had, they trusted Jesus. And that trust is what carried them through those moments of doubt that they had. Sometimes we mistakenly believe that faith is a characteristic of a strong person with deep, well-thought convictions. Fact is that any person may at various points in their life, no matter how deep their faith may be, may have moments of doubt. When oppressive questions come to you and you start asking why, how did that happen, and, and, and those sorts of things. Those are, those are faith troublers. Those are moments when doubt comes. And uh, doubt in lots of different forms. I'd like to suggest that we should lean into doubt. I want to define that word for you. Doubt is not necessarily an enemy to faith. Uh, I have somebody I care about a great deal who has, uh, for one reason or another, become a, a doubter in, in a negative sense of the word and, and really almost at the point of giving up faith. And I'd like to suggest that they're not leaning into the doubt. They're not asking questions and reading and, and nurturing their faith, but rather they're just letting doubt take over. And there's a very big difference. Doubt didn't take over with the apostles. They leaned into it and they, they looked for the opportunities within that occasion to be strengthened and to grow in their faith rather than allowing the doubt to take over. And I think that's what makes a passage like Matthew 28, they worshiped, but some doubted, meaningful. It's because these were people that did not allow the doubt, did not allow the insecurities, did not allow the questions to become the dominant voice in their lives. But they leaned into it and they learned from it and grew so that nearly every single one of the disciples died by martyrdom. Why did they do that? Because their faith was so grand and so strong, even in moments of doubt, that they believed giving up their life was worth it. Let's pray. Dear Father, that... 
we want to thank you for uh, giving us room to move around in, for allowing us to experience doubt and reassurance as we make our way to you. Please do not let doubt win the victory, but rather help us to, through prayer and study, grow ever greater in our faith. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.